Let us read together this morning. Matthew chapter 10, we'll read verses 16 through uh, 25. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through it all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. A few hundred years ago, there was an Italian um, man by the name of Niccolo Machiavelli who wrote a book called The Prince. This book has become very famous for its depiction of what is now known as Machiavellianism. Machiavelli was very upset with the Italian government, especially its connection to the, um, the church there, the Roman church, and especially its otherworldliness. And he began to express that we needed to have a better concept of the need to stay in power and fight for power. He began to express a variety of ways of staying in power um, with the idea of using anything necessary to keep power, whether it's fear or, or um, dishonesty or corruption or whatever it took. The point was is power is most important and whatever it takes to maintain power must be done. In the centuries that have followed his, this book, it has been very well known in the political world and mostly rejected as far as the concept, recognizing that it's better to be moral than it is to remain in power. Though at the same time, though publicly most would say Machiavellianism is wrong, the reality is, is we still see much of what he taught practiced in, most, in modern politics around the world with people being willing to do whatever it takes in order to maintain power, to maintain their political views. Most of the time we don't call it Machiavellianism, we just call it politics or maybe dirty politics. But the point is, is we often see so much of this idea as just the reality of politics. No matter what nation of the world you're in, no matter where you live, this idea that we need to cling to power. Unfortunately, I think this has crept into the church too much, though hopefully not to the extent that it has other places. But there's still often, especially in America, this idea that we need to cling to power. We need to do what it takes in order to establish power, that, that having control of the government is the end. 
But as we come to our text this morning, Christ points us in a different direction. It is not power and authority that is the goal of the church. It is suffering for Christ. It is serving at the cross. Now, we do need to make a, a small note here this morning that I think is important and is helpful for us to think about in this. Our focus today is the mission of the church, not on individuals' responsibility within the state. It is good for individual Christians to serve in government. It is good for us to seek the welfare of the city in which we live. It is good for us to seek righteous government and government that seeks to do what God has commanded. The difference, though, is, is that a Christian should never get caught up into a Machiavellian idea. It should never sacrifice integrity for power. And we need to distinguish between what it is the role of a private citizen within a nation and the mission of the church. It is not the mission of the church to seek power and authority. It is the mission of the church to testify to Christ and his kingdom, which is not of this world. And that is the point that Christ is making in this passage. At the core, though, the point is that suffering persecution is a sign of our identity with Christ. And that is going to be the heart of what Paul or what Christ gets at in our text. We want to look at three main points this morning. First of all, witnesses for Christ. Secondly, the mark of the ages. And finally, identified with Christ. Now, let's think about the context where we're at. We've been going through, um, we've been seeing what Christ is doing, all his mighty acts and miracles. We've seen the great crowds flocking to him. Thousands of people are coming to receive of his of his works it's easy as we see that and now in the over the past few sermons we have seen christ commissioning his disciples to go out and preach the gospel and what would our expectation be great crowds are flocking to him the people love him they're excited about what christ is doing he sends out the disciples and what do we expect Crowds are going to flock to them. They're going to love them. And this church is just going to blossom and grow and everything's going to be great. And everything's going to be wonderful. But as Christ gets ready to go, he says, oh, and by the way, don't expect that. It's going to be the exact opposite. People are going to reject you. They're going to hate you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to turn child against parent and parent against child and spouses against each other and other family members everybody's going to hate each other for my name's sake now that's not what we expect but it's what is proclaimed in fact what christ is saying is as you witness to the kingdom this kingdom is going to bring suffering now verse 16 though begins to give us the reason for all of this he says i'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves and then going to verse 17, there's the picture here that we're to testify. The point is, is Christ is sending them out as messengers. And ultimately, as we'll see, this is going to all of the church, not just the disciples. The point is messengers to testify to Christ, not soldiers to go conquer a kingdom. And so to help illustrate this, Christ gives three animal analogies to help us understand. The first one is this statement of sheep among wolves. 
Now stop and think about that for a moment. What do we normally think about when we think of sheep and wolves? We think of a wolf, or maybe two or three wolves, getting into the sheep herd. And now what happens when that happens? Well, there's a whole lot more sheep than there are wolves. Now the point is, is when a wolf is in the sheep, a sheep is going to die. But if you're the sheep in that, what is your hoping? I hope it's that one, and I can go this way, and I'll be okay. But Christ gives the exact opposite picture here, doesn't he? He gives the picture of a solitary sheep going into a pack of wolves. All of a sudden, the odds go from you being the one that dies of 1 in 20, 30, 40, however many sheep there are, to 100%. That whole wolf pack is going to turn on you, there is no hope. That's the first picture that we see here. And this is a graphic picture, isn't it? This is, a, this is a nightmare scenario if you're a sheep. It's a nightmare scenario if you're a human in the middle of a wolf pack. You're not going to survive. It's, it's a time of destruction. But in the midst of this, Christ gives a response. He says that his, we are to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now this is an interesting response. Now why these two animals? Well, serpents were connected in that culture with, with wisdom or craftiness, intelligence. Think back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. This was the idea that the serpent was the wisest of all the animals. So the point is, is be wise like the serpent. Now what's the problem with that though? We'll think back to Genesis 3 that we just read. He was crafty. Now crafty is not just wisdom, it's, it's cunning, it's skill, it's attempts to get the end that I desire. And what was the purpose of the serpent's craftiness in Genesis? It was to deceive Adam and Eve. We can also think about the serpent in general, there's this idea, why are serpents crafty? Why are they wise? Why do they do what they do? It is so they can kill and they can destroy. Now, if we read this just this one way, Christ says, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves, so be wise as a serpent. What might our thought be? Figure out how to take down as many wolves as you can before they get you. Or maybe even, if you can do be wise enough, maybe you can kill enough wolves that they run and you survive. But Christ tags on a, another animal. He says, be wise as a serpent, but innocent, or sometimes translated harmless, as a dove. How many wolves are a dove killing? None. Now, it's also another significant animal in Jewish culture. A dove was one of the clean animals. It represented purity, innocence. Remember when the Holy Spirit descends on Christ, it comes down in the image of a dove. The point is purity. So what is Christ saying here? He says, you're a sheep in the middle of a wolf pack getting ready to be destroyed. So you need to be very wise in this situation. But the goal is not to destroy the wolf pack. It is to testify of Christ. It is to be innocent. It is to proclaim love and mercy in the middle of that. 
See, Machiavellianism says, and, and most of our culture says, if you're in the middle of that, be wise as serpent so you can destroy the enemy. But what Christ is saying, and no, the goal is not to destroy the enemy, it is to draw, draw attention to Christ. And this is what we see in verses 17 and 18. Christ says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now this verse here is one of the reasons we know that this is not talking about just the specific situation that they are in. It's not just about going out in this immediate commissioning as they go into the to the Jewish people. Because remember, their instructions this time are only to go to the Jewish people, the Jewish cities. And we see that initially you're going to be hauled before the synagogues and flogged there. So that is the local situation. But then he says they're going to, you're going to be hauled before governors and eventually kings and the Gentiles. And so Christ is seeing this as a far-reaching promise. This isn't just immediate. This is going to continue on, and it's going to keep expanding. And more and more, you're going to be brought before those who seek to do you harm for my sake. But what's the point of all of this? He says the point of all this is when you do that, it is to testify to those people. Why are they to be wise it is not to escape the clutches of the enemy necessarily. It is to be able to, in those situations, testify to Christ, of Christ to these various peoples. Now think about this, how we see this fulfilled in the New Testament. On the one hand, part of the point is this is how the gospel is spread. We've seen repeat, we'll see again here in a moment, we've already seen earlier in the passage, this point of when you go to a town and it doesn't receive you, shake the dust off your feet and go to the next town. And that's part of the purpose of the persecution is to cause us to spread out and keep taking the gospel to new places. But let's think about, we see very specifically this fulfilled in various ways in the book of Acts. In one sense, we see all of the various um, Several different stories of various apostles being hauled before leaders, governors, and Paul, eventually the king. But think about Paul, especially think about this wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. Remember, Paul's on trial. He's, the Jews are trying to, to, to kill him. They're doing everything they can. They've plotted. They're lying in wait. They're gonna, what they're going to do, if you remember back to Acts, they're, they're lying in wait they have, they have, they're going to have Paul, when he's brought before the king, they're going to jump the guards about halfway there, haul Paul off, and kill him. Now, Paul was very wise, and his people got to the governor and told him what was going on, and so he was brought straight to the governor at different routes. They couldn't, they couldn't surprise them. They couldn't kill him. And they get there, and Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, why did he do that? Well, our first thought was to, to, to get away, Right? He appeals to Caesar, Caesar will set him free. Well, actually, later on, we're told that, you know, as, as the gov different governors are talking, they said, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, I'd have already set him free. But he's appealed to Caesar, so we have to send him to Caesar. And what did Caesar do to Paul? He cut off his head. 
But why did Paul make that point? Why did he insist on appealing to Caesar, even though he could have just stayed there and be set free where he was already? Because he knew that he needed to testify of the gospel to Caesar. Now stop and think about that for a moment as we think about this picture that Christ is setting up. And I think Paul fulfills what Christ is saying. Christ is saying, I'm sending you out as a sheep amidst wolves. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hauled before these people. So be wise. Wisdom here is not how to get power, how to destroy your enemies, how to be victorious in that sense. It is how to testify of me how to proclaim the gospel in all of these situations. One of the things I think we've lost so much in our modern world is the word martyr itself. The word martyr, our English word, comes from the Greek word, which is the word that we see throughout the New Testament translated most of the time as witness. The word martyr means witness. For the early church, the two things were so connected that we've ended up becoming and we've transferred meaning to where we think of a martyr simply as someone who dies for the sake of the gospel. When the early church saw them as intertwined, you died because you were testifying to Christ. Now that's a challenge to our ears. And it's a, and it's a difficult thing for us to always wrestle with. But we see this kind of brought together in verses 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Note verse 20, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Christ says the reason we can do this is because when you are brought before these various leaders, Christ, the Father, or the Father himself is speaking through you. He is going to give you the words to speak. Why? To testify of me, to testify of the gospel. Now, this is the point of all this is to, to calm the apostles and ultimately the entire church. Don't be worried when persecution comes. Don't be worried when these people attack. The Lord will guide us. He will lead us through. Now, this is not fatalism. What's the preceding verse? Be wise as a serpent. We're called to be wise. We're called to make use of the tools that we have. Paul had a tool that none of the rest of the apostles had. He was a Roman citizen, and he used that to his benefit in order to accomplish what he needed to accomplish. That's being wise as a serpent. It's not fatalism, but there's another side to this. Our wisdom is always flawed. It's never perfect. It will fail. And so it's that comfort that even as our wisdom fails, even as we don't testify as we ought, even as we think, we'll think about in upcoming weeks those days when we don't testify as we ought, when we fail and we deny Christ, to remember that we are still in Christ and that he will still lead us and guide us. The New Testament is full of these promises of persecution, and they're all there to help comfort the church, to prepare us for difficult times. 
to remind us of who we are and why we serve and what we're testifying to, what we're witnesses of. The more we think that our goal is to conquer, the more we might think of ourselves as devouring serpents. But the more we understand that the persecution is the mark of the age, the more we can endure persecution, being wise as a serpent, but being innocent as a dove, harmless as a dove, seeking the good of the gospel of Christ. Now, this is the mark of the age in which we live in. Verses 21 and 22 give a very disturbing statement, though. Verse 21 says, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all by my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is challenging and this is sobering, is it not? This idea of being delivered over or, or by our own family members, brother against brother, parent against child, child against parent. The, the relationship that is supposed to be the strongest in our world, the relationship that is supposed to be the one that endures everything that we get through despite all of the difficulties yet Christ says that it will be common for these very relationships that should transcend everything to be so corrupted by the hatred of the gospel that children will turn over their parents parents their children brother brother and the implication is on and on named relationship and it can be a problem it's hard to fathom this, but it happens. Down through the centuries, almost every time that there's been strong persecution against the church, these types of betrayals, these types of situations, persecution has been a part of it. Even today in our world, we're seeing children being taught how to testify against their parents and attack their parents for preaching the gospel. We see here in the next, in, the, in verse 22, this idea along with this that we'll be hated by all for Christ's namesake. This is a little bit of hyperbole here, but there's a sense in which it's pointing up an underlying reality. We can probably all think about the people who don't hate us, at least on the surface. But the reality is what Christ is getting at here is the more that we are in Christ, the more we are testifying to his kingdom, those that are in rebellion against his kingdom will hate the messengers of that kingdom. Now, this doesn't mean that in every situation it will be carried out to its fullest extent. This doesn't mean that every person is going to be doing everything they can to kill the messenger of the gospel. But it does get to a deeper issue that in general... There is a hatred of the light by those who live in darkness. Now, we'll flesh that out more in the next couple of weeks or a couple of sermons as we go through later in the passage, but it's important for us to set that phase here. The point, then, is to help us begin to see the way in which the church is going to be at odds with this world. Now, at the end of verse 22, though, we see an important statement that's going to really guide much of what we see both today and the rest of this passage over the next few weeks. 
but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Christ says, ultimately, though, this persecution is a test of faith. It's a test to see who's our true believers, who can receive persecution and yet continue on, who can receive these attacks and yet stand for righteousness. Right now in our world, we have a seemingly, at least in our, in our nation, a seeming decline in Christianity. There is the, the numbers of professing Christians are rapidly shrinking around our nation. Now, this has led to much open rejoicing by those who hate the gospel as they're, they're prophesying the doom and the end of the church. It's also led to lots of consternation by many within the church who, in fear of losing power and influence, are turning to all kinds of schemes to try to make sure that we stay in power, whether it be by efforts to the government or changing how we do, how we view the Bible and changing how we do worship or whatever other technique it is, all centered on trying to maintain the status quo. But the thing is, I think as we think about this decline, we should really recognize it in light of what Christ is saying here. There's a sense in which it's a positive. The point is, is those that are rejecting the faith, and we'll think, again, we'll think about this more even as we go through this larger passage, are doing so because they never had faith to begin with. There is a, it, when, when Christianity is in power, when there's a majority of Christians, it becomes easy to serve Christ. All of a sudden, it becomes a matter of convenience to proclaim Christ. There's job opportunities. There's openings for greater things when you say you love Jesus. But when persecution comes, when all of a sudden that begins to change, and all of a sudden you're the, you get looked over for promotions because you confess Christ, when other difficulties arise, it's real easy to turn from those things and find a different way to go. In reality, that's much of what we're seeing in our world right now. That persecution is simply separating those with faith from all others. And we really haven't seen persecution yet. Things are just getting more difficult. It's ultimately, though, when we see this, that we can really understand what's going on in the previous verses. The more society rejects the Bible, the more families can turn on each other. And then what does our society tell us right now? We need to be on the right side of history. But what is the right side of history? Again, something we'll think about a little bit more over the next couple of weeks. First of all, nobody in our world can really decide what the right side of history is on just about any topic. Name the topic, and we still have debates over who was right. But more importantly, the right side of history is Christ's side. It is confessing the king who rules this world. The reality is, is what our world views as right and wrong is going to come and go. Persecution is going to come and go. It is only Christ and his kingdom, his church, that truly endures. The problem, though, I think we're facing in our world right now, what I want to finish off this point with, is to think about the struggle that often we go through. 
And I think it's a similar struggle to what probably the disciples were going through as well. Remember, think back to the first century and the millennial expectations or the, the kingdom expectations is probably a better way of putting it. They were expecting the Messiah to come, set up the kingdom, overthrow the Romans, and bring paradise in that moment. That's part of the reason in the end most of the Jewish nation rejected Christ is because they didn't get the kingdom they were expecting in that moment. Think about the disciples as they start following Christ. They believe He is the Messiah. They believe He is the one to come. And they have those same views. They're ready to fight. And further, they're thinking, if we go out and we follow the Messiah and we keep the law of God, we're going to be blessed. All these good things are going to happen. Now, if Christ had just left them there and sent them out and all of a sudden the persecution hit, they had been very perplexed, might be a good way of putting it. But now he begins to promise, by the way, understand this isn't where things are going. Now, I think we live in a similar situation. We've had a relatively long period of peace in this nation. For many years, a large percentage, if not the majority, have at least claimed to be Christian, whether they were or not. There has been peace for churches, peace for Christians, and in many ways, advantages if you said you were a Christian. And now that's changing. Now, the problem that we often struggle with is how do we understand these promises? We've seen peace for 200 years to 300 years or maybe more. And yet Christ says persecution's coming. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, one is a very pessimistic attitude. For many, this means that there really hasn't been peace for two or 300 years. It means that we have, the church hasn't been doing what it's supposed to be doing. And Christians have to go out and create persecution, basically. We have to do things to make people mad at us so that we can um, show that we're actually serving the Lord and suffering for His name's sake. That problem, I think, is already being anticipated in the New Testament as both Christ, or not both Christ, both Paul and Peter address the need to honor the government, to obey the laws of the nation in which we live emphasizing that if we violate, if we're persecuted just because we're in rebellion against the government, that's not persecution for Christ. Other times we get ourselves in trouble just because we're mean, we're jerks. We don't do what we're supposed to be. The other side is this optimistic side, or hyper-optimism maybe, the idea that this promise of persecution was really only for the apostles or maybe the early church. But as the church has grown and flourished, the goal is to bring the kingdom in and to get rid of persecution, and everything will be great. For a time, it looked like it was going that way. Europe became Christian. We had what was known as Christendom. The Holy Roman Empire ruled much of, if not all, of Europe. And peace reigned, right? Now, as Baptists, we're here today because we got persecuted by the Holy Roman Empire. Because the call on the church is not to establish an earthly kingdom. It is to testify to Christ. Note verse 23. Christ says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. 
For truly I say to you, you will not have gone throughout all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We've already seen similar language, haven't we, up at the end of our previous section. Verse 14, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. The point here, the picture being given by Christ is persecution is going to be regular, but it's not ubiquitous. You're going to go to one town, they're going to receive the message, and it's going to spread. You're going to go to another town, they're going to persecute you, shake the dust off your feet, and move to the next town. Now, why is that significant? Because ultimately, if we think back to the history of the church, this is what we've seen. Last year, we went through and we studied church history in Sunday school. Those that were a part of that will remember that one of the things that, we, that was emphasized was that persecution wasn't constant. We hear the, the, the stories of being burned at the stake and the Colosseum and fed to the lions and all of these things, but that wasn't a constant process. There were batches of persecution for a period of time, and there were times of peace. And that's really, if you think back to the history of our age, that's what the history of our age is. The church, it's ups and downs. There's times of great persecution, times of mild persecution, and times of no persecution. We have been living in one of the, the longest eras of no persecution in our country. But for those who study this issue, note that the rest of the world has seen more persecution in the past hundred years than at any other time in the history of the church. And that's the past. What the mark of the age is persecution, but that does not mean that at every single point there's going to be intense persecution. And think about the statement here at the end of verse 23, you will not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. But the picture here is a, one of those what we see in Scripture of prophecy of an elongated view condensed down. The point is, is that as the gospel goes forth, as we go from town to town to town, we will take the gospel throughout the world before Christ comes in his glory. So how do we then respond? Well, first of all, we need to be careful to avoid extremes. You hear a lot of talk of pessimistic views and optimistic views of eschatology. And I think we need to be careful with those terms. In some ways, I think that Scripture teaches pushes us in a somewhat pessimistic direction, but in other ways a very optimistic direction. It's pessimistic in the sense that the kingdoms of this world are not going to become Christian. The kingdoms of this world will, throughout this age, be focused on persecuting the church. Persecution will come and go. It will rise and fall. But overall, it is the mark of the age. We also avoid the... the pessimism of things like dispensationalism that views that as being the death of the church. No, the ch we're very optimistic about the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will continue on and it will go forward and the gospel will be proclaimed. The problem is the kingdom is not of the nature that so often we try to make it out to be. The kingdom is one of testifying to Christ. It is about the growth of the church, not the kingdoms of this world. It is not about a physical ruling in this world. It is about the kingdom of Christ to come. 
And so we need to avoid these extremes. Rest our optimism in Christ, but hold no hope in this world. And then when at peace, let us rejoice. If God has given us peace to proclaim the gospel, let us faithfully preach the gospel. And when persecuted, let us rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for his namesake. Let us not provoke persecution. Let us seek peace. Let us be like our Savior who did not return reviling for reviling. Let us love our neighbors. But let us proclaim the gospel. And this brings us to our last point that in all of this, it is to be identified with Christ. Verses 24 and 25 give us the reason for all of this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? The older I get, the more I understand aspects of this passage. The hubris of youth is always focused upon how we can do things better than our masters, especially when there's conflict, isn't it? We think that we can somehow avoid the conflict that our teachers had. Well, if they hadn't done it this way, there wouldn't have been a conflict, so if I'll do it differently, and I won't have the problems that they had. But the older you get, what do we realize? Conflict is inevitable. It is part of the life in this world, especially when you stand for something. There's another problem that as well as we think about our text. Our master is not another human teacher who makes mistakes. Our master is Christ. We will always be the student, always be the servant. He is always the master. We never become the master. We never surpass him. We never grow above him. We are always under him, always identified with him. And so Christ says it is because of that identity with Christ is why we suffer. Now, how do we see our identity will really help define how we see our relationship to this world. The more we think about our identity with Christ being identified with his kingship, the more we will seek power and authority in this world. But the more we recognize that our identity is not with him as king, but with him as the suffering servant the more we can embrace the suffering of this world, embrace the persecution as it comes, and move forward. The point of all of this is that we are to identify primarily with the cross and not the crown. I want to look at some other passages real quickly this morning. I want to first look to 1 Peter chapter 2 and think about some of the different ways in which this is framed in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 11 through 12, Peter tells us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A couple things here. First of all, Paul addresses us as sojourners and exiles because this is what we are in this world. 
We are sojourners and exiles. We live here, but we are not of this world. His kingdom isn't of this world. Secondly, as we made a point a moment ago, keep your conduct honorable. Why? If you're going to suffer, make sure we're suffering for Christ's sake and not for our own passions and our own will. But secondly, if we skip down a few verses to 20 and 21, we see that we suffer because this is what we are called to in Christ. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, in this, the main context here is, first of all, looking at the relationship of the government in verses 13 through 17, and then servants to their master in 18 and 19, but all this comes together here at the end. We are called to suffer for Christ's sake. Further, the point is, is this life is marked by service to the king, Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 22. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I am to drink? Here in this verse, remember the mother of James and, and um, or um, mothers of James and John have come to Christ and asked for him to sit at the right hand of the Father, or right hand of Christ's throne when he comes into his kingdom. And this is what Christ answers Can you drink of the cup? What is that cup? It is his suffering and his death. Now Christ goes on to tell them, they say they can drink of it, and Christ says, yes, you actually will drink of it. You're going to suffer. Then look, skip down to verses 25 and 28. It says, but Jesus called them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even so, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for all. Now this passage is an oft-quoted passage focusing on the principle of servant leadership, that leaders in the church are to serve um, primarily. And that's a good application. It's not, I don't want to take away from that point. That is much of what Christ is saying here. But if we think about this in a larger context, it's more than that. It is focused upon not just being a servant within the church, but recognizing the nature of the kingdom. That we're looking not to a present kingdom in this world, but a kingdom to come. And secondly, how do we get there? By serving and what? Suffering for his namesake. The kingdom doesn't come because we conquer. The kingdom comes because we serve and we suffer. We proclaim the kingdom, but the kingdom comes not by the sword. The kingdom comes by the cross. Think about Matthew chapter 28 and verses 18 through 20. Very, the great commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here Christ establishes that he has all authority. He is the king currently sitting on the throne. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. What is the commission then? Go conquest. Go put everybody else in subject to you. Go make sure you establish my kingdom here and now. No, let's go make disciples. Teach people about me. Baptize them. Bring them into the church. Make disciples of all the peoples of all nations. There's a time to seek the welfare of the city. There's a time to move to the next city. But in all things, the call here is to identify with Christ, with his service and suffering. We proclaim a theology of the cross, not a theology of glory. Glory is to come. This age is marked by suffering. Our sermon series through Matthew is entitled, The King and the Kingdom. Because that's the main theme of Matthew, is that Christ is the king coming to bring the kingdom of heaven. The problem is, is we keep making the same mistake that so many of the Jewish people made, and that is thinking about the kingdom in terms of physical earthly kingdoms. They're going to be conquered by the sword and going to set up this power on earth. But John 18 gives us a different picture of the kingdom. John verses 18, or chapter 18, verses 36 through 37 gives us a little bit different picture. As Christ is standing before Pilate, he says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Christ says, yes, I'm here for the kingdom, but the kingdom is not the kingdom that everybody's expecting. It's not a kingdom that puts me at odds trying to overthrow Caesar. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom is the world, my servants would fight for me. But there's no reason for his servants to fight for him because his kingdom is not of that nature. Think about Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. Luke 17 and verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in the ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Pharisees say, when is the kingdom coming? Because remember, that's what they're expecting. They're expecting the Messiah to come and bring the kingdom. And Christ says, it's here. It's, all, it's already here. It's in the midst of you. It just doesn't look like you thought it would look. It's not this physical, earthly kingdom that you're expecting. It's not like the other kingdoms of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom, and it's already here. 
because of this, then, the servants suffer. 1 Timothy 3, 12, in a very familiar passage, Timothy promise, or, or Paul promises Timothy persecution. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews 2, Paul says that in this age, Christ is king. He is sitting on his throne and he is ruling, but this is not what we see. We look around and we see it appearing that Christ has not conquered anything. We see the powers of this world raging against the king, but our hope is that in the end, our king is already victorious. That this is the ragings of a defeated enemy, shaking their fist against the Savior, but accomplishing nothing. We are right now in a shift in our world, in our nation anyway, where we're seeing things shift. We're beginning to face persecution. It's not intense yet, but it's there. We're beginning to feel it. Already we're seeing situations where, if we're not careful, we can lose jobs, get passed over for promotions, have difficulty in different aspects, get sued at work. All of these things are beginning to come, but so much of the point of the New Testament, we see it over and over again. We've just tapped the beginning of the various passages promising this. Why? Because this is the mark of the age, and it's the identity we have with Christ. We're in the middle of Isaiah and the suffering servant Psalms, as our brother Ken pointed out this morning. It is the suffering servant who we are called to identify with. Just as he has suffered on our behalf, so we suffer. And this is the main point of the book of Revelation. The purpose of the book of Revelation is not to teach us who the Antichrist is. It's not to give all these information about some future period. It is to help us throughout this age as we go from different patches of persecution to others to understand that the victory is already won. The king is triumphant. The lamb has defeated the wolves. And therefore, as we face that suffering, as we face that persecution, we can have rest and we can have hope in Christ. That no matter what happens here, our comfort is secured in our Savior. He has borne us through. He will carry us through. We may get there a little faster because... We find the end of the sword. But we're going to have all eternity to glorify the Lamb for His care for His church. And so let us not panic and let us not seek unbiblical responses trying to contain, to control power. But rather let the church do what the church is called to do and that is be faithful. Continue testifying to the Savior no matter what hap happens, proclaiming his name. And may when the Savior comes, we be found faithful. May we be found rejoicing that we were called to suffer for his name's sake. And may we rejoice in his coming. Amen.